Four Corners podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to the next episode of the Four Corners podcast with your host, Klisman Marathi. And on this episode, we have a very special guest with us today. We have Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist of JP Morgan Asset Management. And we're here today to talk about all things strategy, um, how David views the markets and what his thoughts are on how 2021 will develop into 2022 and beyond. So thank you so much, David, and welcome to the show. I'm very glad to be here. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So the first question I'll put to you, and this is something that I've been thinking about, um, especially as COVID has almost taken full focus of um, the investing world, is how do you think 2021 plays out? Because in one of your recent reports, you mentioned that 2021 will be the end of COVID with the rise of vaccines. How do you see this playing out in the real world? And how will, uh, how will you respond? How will the investment community, do you think, respond to this? Both 2020 and 2021 are dominated by the virus um, but, uh, and, the, and the pandemic. But I think the difference is that in 2020, it was the year of the virus and we had this huge global recession. In 2021, it really is the year of the vaccines and we're seeing this vaccine rollout. Now, it's not even around the world. Uh, the, uh, the UK and the United States are doing very well in terms of vaccination. So is Israel. Continental Europe is lagging behind. I think Asia is lagging further behind that. But I do see, you know, our pharmaceutical companies have done a very good job in creating uh, vaccines which are safe and effective, as far as we can see. And uh, this does seem to be having an impact on the mortality numbers already. And I think they will have an impact on uh, crushing the pandemic over time. You don't need everybody to take the vaccine to crush the pandemic. I mean, personally, I, you know, I, 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 I jump at the chance to take a vaccine because of, uh, because of what the pandemic has done to us all. But uh, there is a large number of people who, who now have some immunity because they caught the disease. And in both Europe and the United States, the combination of those who have immunity from catching the disease and those who have been vaccinated will, I think, cause the, the pandemic to wind down. So in the United States, we think it will wind down over the course of the second quarter. By the time we get to the 1st of July, it will be pretty much, I think, beneath the surface. I think it'll take a little longer in Europe and a little longer in Asia. But by the end of the year, I think the whole world will be coming out of the pandemic. And uh, that will lead to a very natural, strong surge in economic activity. All the service sector activities that people have not engaged in, I think they will engage in. So we're looking at a very strong rebound in global, the global economy, particularly in the United States. Uh, that does mean higher interest rates, it means higher profits, uh, but it does, I think, have profound implications for the uh, investment environment, because it's quite a different investment environment this year, obviously, from what we saw last year. Naturally, naturally. But from the conversations I've had with some investors and some of our clients and audience, it seems as if because this, uh, such, this uh, impact of how coronavirus has impacted the markets, it's been very different to how other, other global events have impacted the markets. You, you, you think back to the, the Great uh, Recession, and other financially caused uh, financial fluxes, whereas this is a whole different dimension of risk because it comes from the health sector, something which investors don't have expertise in. It's the doctors that, that, that really have uh, take the lead on how we will come out of this. So being that is the case, this blind spot in understanding what the future will hold, do you think we've seen sort of a wait and see response from a lot of people or have, have uh, in, in your point of view, have people been aggressive in taking advantage of, um, of the unpredictability? Well, I, I think, you know, recessions, uh, if, if you remember the opening lines of Anna Karenina, 
uh, it is that all happy families are happy in the same way, but all unhappy families are, are, are have a unique way of being unhappy. And I sort of feel the same way, way about recessions. They're all bad, but they're all different. And this one is perhaps the most different of all. Um, and that does mean that from a modeling perspective, for example, I, I've run a macroeconomic model of the US economy for the last 25 years. It's really hard to, to you have to manhandle these equations and these series in order to try to come up with a plausible forecast of what, what's going to happen because there is no past experience in modern history of how a pandemic affects the economy or how the recovery from a pandemic affects the economy. But I do think that professional money managers are not waiting to see. I think, I think what you have to do is think logically about, okay, what, what the pandemic did, but then let's look at the, the disease, let's look at the vaccines, let's look at the path, let's think about how industries will react to this, let's look at fiscal policy, monetary policy, and you build a framework, a most likely scenario for how things are going to work out. And particularly if that involves dramatic change from where you are, then you do want to put your, your money where your mouth is and, and, uh, and make investments while the opportunity is there. And I think in many ways, that's why the market bounced back very strongly last year after the pandemic hit, because I think a lot of professional um, investors took a close look at how bad the pandemic was, but also the large chunk of companies that would be able to get past this. And also the fact that there is an end date to this thing. Uh, if you make the bet that, that the biotech industry will come up with, with vaccines, then you know that you know, this is a book-ended recession. It starts with the virus, it ends with the vaccine, and, and that's not usual for recessions. You can't usually, you know, usually you crawl out of recession. This one, we're going to bounce out of the recession when the vaccine is, is fully deployed. And that's, uh, so we, we basically had to put that into our models and try to figure out what all that means for markets. We couldn't wait to see what happened because then the markets would have moved uh, ahead of us and, and uh, we'd have missed out on some good returns. Yeah. And what do you think are the kind of lessons that you've learned personally yourself throughout this period? You mentioning apart from uh, the Spanish flu, you've never had something as global as this before. So this must have been very new to you as well. Are there any lessons that you think you've learned which are primary in your strategic thinking? And how will you take them on into 2021 and beyond? Well, I think it's simply a, a reminder of the fact that we are very... Um, uh, that as, as a people, we're very adaptable. I mean, humans just adapt. And so we were looking at companies that did adapt and companies that didn't adapt, but most companies simply adapted to this. Um, I think that it has had some profound effects on things like uh, business travel and um, office usage going forward. So I think it will reshape the, the environment. I would say that, you know, we do take a long look at history. And I mean, I, I'm a history buff. I love history. And I think I see a lot of human behavior which repeats itself over the centuries in a fairly predictable manner. But so much else about the environment does change that you can't really take the lessons of history. I mean, if the Spanish flu, of course, was a similar kind of pandemic, where it was a pandemic with no hope of a vaccine, um, and it was a pandemic in which people would more or less go about their lives because they knew there was no point in waiting for a vaccine. Um, so it had a, a terrible toll. Uh, but uh, we all we knew the economy would react differently to it. And also, of course, there's no, you know, the the things that you can do with electronic uh, um, communications in this economy means that, that, that there are practical ways of avoiding getting infected today, which just would never have been available a, a century ago. For sure, for sure. But it seems as if a lot of the conversation I've heard on the news, and even when you, you read the papers, is pandemic focused, but realizing that the world is still moving, businesses are still operating, world that doesn't stop because the pandemic is here. 
Are there any things that you feel that aren't getting enough attention that you may be focusing on, which are is completely disconnected to the pandemic? Maybe geopolitical shifts or issues in relation to trade or any other unique aspects of the world that aren't getting the attention that is needed, especially given that the the COVID uh, you know um, virus is front and center. Well, I think the most important thing that is um, you know that, that investors may be overlooking here is related. Um, to the pandemic, which is the way that monetary policy and fiscal policy has reacted. Um, so if you, if you turn the clock back to the end of the great financial crisis, after the great financial crisis, central banks became very active. They had to be active during the financial crisis because it was a financial crisis. And so they got into the game of trying to help the economy out. And that makes, makes a lot of sense when you've got markets which are frozen. It makes a little less sense when you're trying to use low interest rate policy to stimulate stronger aggregate demand, because frankly, that doesn't work. Uh, it, and it is a testament to the, to the arrogance of central bankers in general that, that a decade after the great financial crisis, they don't really admit that. And you can still see uh, central banks using very low interest rates or negative interest rates to try and stimulate the economy. Now, what they can do, of course, which is much more powerful, is they can enable central governments to run aggressive fiscal policies and with cheap financing. And that is what's happened this time around. So this is all about the fiscal as opposed to the monetary. But the thing that I think investors are perhaps missing is that this combination of uh, very easy money and very strong fiscal stimulus is heating up an economy, uh, but also heating up capital markets. And so we've seen a very long period of time in which financial assets have grown more than the economy overall. We've, we're now supporting a mountain of financial assets on top of the, the, over, the real economy. And I think that people are, are perhaps complacent uh, about the dangers of a monetary and fiscal policy, which have entirely turned dovish and which there's no restraint at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Turning the page to a different uh, chapter now, moving completely away from the pandemic and more towards understanding the rise of China. Now, this is a conversation piece that everyone is speaking about. And from the past interviews I've seen of yours, and correct me if, if, I, if I'm wrong here, but it seems to be your, your perspective that as China rises, the best thing that the West can do in terms of engagement is, is see if they can bring them on side um, with terms of opening up their markets and transitioning them into, into a democracy or having more democratic aspects of their of their um, of their uh, political system be present because fundamentally right now there seems to be such a difference between the Chinese way of doing things and the Western way of doing things which may hinder companies who want to enter into the Chinese market geopolitically. Would that be a fair assessment of your view towards China and how can you give our audience a much more a much more thicker understanding of your perspective of how China and the West develop in 2021 and beyond? Well, I think, I think it's very important to have a strategic approach towards our relationship with China. I think that the best way of looking at this is if you think about our grandchildren in the uh, 22nd century, as they look back at the 21st century, uh, they will uh, recognize that one of the great themes was the struggle uh, between uh, China and the West. Um, and it is a struggle, you know, the, these, China is growing in terms of its, its influence. It, it probably will have the largest economy in the world in terms of GDP uh, by the 2030 and perhaps by 2027 is what we're calculating right now. 
Um, so it's, it is growing and it cannot be ignored. I think the relationship between the United States and China is, is really a multi-dimensional um, relationship. There are areas in which we must and should and are willing to cooperate, such as on uh, climate change or on things like a pandemic or, or uh, things that affect the whole world. We, we need to be working in cooperation. We have, a, we have such mutual interests in, say, in controlling nuclear proliferation or climate change. So th these are things we need to do. Um, there are also areas where we are going to confront China um, in areas of human rights. I think the West, and this is not just the United States, but the, but the democracies of the world uh, feel very strongly about the right of free speech and the right of self-determination of individuals and the right to vote. Um, these, are, these are fundamental to how we feel about, about the world. And these are obviously not values shared by the Chinese government um, that, that we currently have. And so, you know, there, there will be a level of confrontation. There must be, you know, if there are human rights abuses um, or there are uh, other ways in which China is behaving in a, in a, in a way that, that we just find in the West completely unacceptable, then I would expect to see confrontation. But then there are also, there's also going to be a big area of competition, which is somewhere in between, where we, we just try to play a game and try to make sure that uh, you know, in, in terms of trade, in terms of technological achievement, uh, we will compete with each other. We will want to make sure that there are fair terms of trade, that we do everything we can to advance technology. They do everything they can to advance technology. We try to, you know, I think the world will want to try and deal with poverty and, uh, you know, China will want to help its people move to greater levels of uh, income. So there are, um, you know, the competition may well be good. It may make us all a little faster, a little smarter, but it's a very multi-dimensional thing. And from a U.S. perspective, I think it would be naive of us to simply think that we can uh, put up a wall and just try to fight China at this point, um, particularly on our own um, in the United States, because the United States is simply not big enough in the world anymore to be able to, um, you know, bully the Chinese government into doing what we want. Um, I do think that uh, one of the approaches that the U United States should take is by uh, you know, knitting its relationship with Western Europe, with Canada and Australia and Japan and uh, Korea and Taiwan, uh, knitting those relationships closer um, and uh, you know, trying to, when we think about co competition or the areas we want to confront China, you know, try to act in a unified, in a, in a balanced strategic way, but, but try to take advantage of the economic power and the people power of, of all the democracies in the world rather than just uh, the United States on its own. Because I think that, that does give um, the West still a strategic advantage over China, which uh, again, sometimes it's, it's a matter of cooperation, sometimes a matter of confrontation, sometimes it's a matter of competition. But in, in whatever the relationship is, it's always important to um, approach a relationship from a position of strength. And I think the West's strength comes from the ideas of democracy and the common um, ideas of democracy and uh, self-determination, which I think, uh, you know, the Western Europe um, and the United States and countries like uh, Japan and, um, and Taiwan and, and uh, Korea share. Yeah, I think you're right in saying that because, especially from our analysis or my personal analysis on, on the rise of China, there, there, there seemed to have been a, a big enthusiasm from the United States, even during Reagan's time, that if we, if we get close to China, that will cause a rift between China and the and the U, and the USSR. But as time has developed and time has passed, the West, especially America, have been hopeful that China will change 
become more democratic with no avail. And I think they've given up these ideas, at least in some circles, but that still leaves the fact that it's still a very big country with many different resources at its disposal. Uh, the foremost being its populace and the size and also its its ability to create or be the factory of the world. And now its identity and its strategy is changing. Given that, as you mentioned, it's I think it's a battle between hearts and minds, really, because the, the, would you rather live in, in, in a part of the world where ideas of democracy, free speech, free trade and open trade are valued, or would you rather live in the opposite world? Saying that, if you were to be in a position where you could somehow influence the the dynamic, do you think investors have power to influence or are they simply um, at, uh, at uh, how can I say, they're um, at risk of just being influenced by geopolitics or do they have a role to play in making sure that the standards that we set in the West are upheld, especially when you have issues with China or are they simply the receivers of um, of the geopolitical chaos that is caused between these two big powers? Um, I think business relationships are generally positive. I think investment relationships are generally positive. The more that China is invested in the United States, the more that US investors are invested in China, the West is invested in China, the more common interest we have in finding compromise, finding solutions, um, because we've got more on the table. You know, the two countries which have got uh, no economic relationship at all uh, can, can, you know, um, fall out or have some conflict without, uh, without such a, paying such a price. But the, the stronger those economic links are, the more both sides have to lose from confrontation. And that may open a path towards compromise. I'm not naive about this. I mean, I've, I've, I've rarely seen a circumstance in the world where a ruling group uh, you know, freely gives up its power to some other group just, uh, just because uh, either the people demand it or, uh, the, uh, or some outside country suggested that's, that would be a nice thing to do. So I don't really, I'm not naive about that. But uh, again, from a Western perspective, we share one world um, and the, there's only so much you can achieve. And, and while we may, you know, we, I don't think anybody, anyone in the United States would exactly choose the Chinese form of government as a preferable form of government. There's a limit to what we should be willing to give up, I think, to, um, to change that, uh, particularly given the potential for, um, you know, as you said, chaos in the world if you, if you um, sort of bl bluster around and try to deal with these problems. Yeah. And do you think from your foresights and your, 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 your strategic analysis of the world, are we set to experience more geopolitical chaos moving forward into the future, especially as more nations grow and they develop on at least what we call their centers of power, meaning they have specific aspects, each nation have, uh, have uh, tools at their disposal that they can use to influence their world or influence their region as they see fit. So things like their active consumer market, their growth of their, their, their economy, their military balance, their technological leadership, and others, and as more nations develop on all these six sides, there's as a few more, they become more powerful. That's our idea anyway, and we will see more geopolitical chaos. Is this area of, of the rise of geopolitical risk in on your radar when you look at the investment landscape? Uh, well, we well the two issues is geopolitical risk really rising, and then the second the second case is how can you hedge against geopolitical risk? So um, I think 
Um, I think it's still an open question. I think, you know, clearly the long-term threat from nuclear arms is growing. And that's, you know, nobody ever talks about it. And I, you know, hope to God we don't have to think about the year in which nuclear power or nuclear weapons uh, really turned our world upside down the way this pandemic has this year. Um, but, you know, it's always, it's out there. And that is getting worse over time. I think we're also in a situation where in a lot of democracies, uh, populism rules the roost on both the left and the right. And I frankly find populism very dangerous because democracies depend upon well-informed investors, uh, sorry, well-informed voters making logical decisions. And that usually supports you know, centrist, moderate governments. And that's what you want to see. Populism is really an appeal to sort of shut off the left side of the brain and just do what feels good whether it is following a, you know, a right-wing bumper sticker or a left-wing bumper sticker. But I think populism undermines democracies and, and empowers uh, uh, autocrats. So I do worry about that. But has the, you know, I'm not sure that the tide has entirely gone in that direction because while I can see political power um, you know, in recent years has moved a little bit more towards the autocrats, I also see you know, advances in education. I mean, we see a greater and greater proportion of the people of the world are receiving not just a um, primary and secondary education, but uh, more college graduates. And uh, over time, the more educated people are, the more people understand the science of how this world works, um, the greater is, a, you know, I think the probability of, of at least a majority of people wanting to achieve sensible policies. And then it's just how do you, how do you help people see the honest truth about where countries are, where uh, or what policies make sense or, or not. And that's, uh, it's a challenge, it's a communications challenge, but I'm not sure, you know, it's easy to say uncertainty is always rising or geopolitical tensions are always rising. But, you know, if you look back at the last century on World War One and World War II um, and the Cold War, it's not clear that, that this moment is more dangerous than those moments. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess to, to that level of having a world war, not so much so, but with the, with the introduction of, uh, well, you can say with the introduction of nuclear weapons, the world has become more peaceful because they know what impact it will have if two nuclear powers go to war with each other. But regionally, yeah. I think I would say that the world is much more active because superpowers aren't the only thing that matter anymore. You know, the USSR, China, and uh, the, uh, with the West or the UK and the US aren't the only big players anymore. The, Secu the Security Council is there in name, but in terms of active movements and active, active um, geopolitical issues, they're very much regional with players that didn't really have a voice even 20 years ago without having much more of a voice, although not to the level of, of a world war, but um, they have a chance to express themselves through the use of their power, whether it be increasing tariffs because their consumer markets are now bigger. So that's a pull for them because they, they, they can use that uh, as, as a bargaining chip with other nations if they need to. So it may not be to the level of world wars, but um, I'm happy that uh, at least the focus on the rise of nuclear proliferation is on your radar because you're right in saying that that hasn't really been talked about at all in the investment community. Typically, from what I hear anyway, it's macroeconomic issues that are talked about in 99% of circles. And when you introduce ideas of geopolitics, it's unless there's something big, then we're not going to focus on it. Um, yes, and I think, you know, to your point, I mean, I do think that technology empowers the individual. And um, that, you know, in, in some ways, that's why small powers or small groups or small terrorist groups are far more scary today than they would have been in the past. I mean, if you, if you turn the clock back 200 years ago, if you turn back to, say, the Napoleonic Wars, 
you know, the power of a nation, the, the relevance of a nation depended entirely upon its ability to, to uh, wield an enormous military and, and, uh, and, and send an army, you know, across a land or sea. And that's just not a, um, it, it, it's, that's not the world we live in anymore. So we, we have a right to be worried about, um, you know, people, uh, a few individual players in cyberspace or um, in uh, dealing with various potential weapons of mass destruction, or even using technology in clever ways, obviously in 9-11 uh, against a, a superpower. So um, it is a more complicated world in, the, in, in that sense, uh, because it's, it's not just a simple manpower issue in terms of um, your ability to wage war that, that, uh, that defines some of the threats that, that exist around the world. I think you're right. The way that I like to think about it sometimes, David, is saying that Risk is like energy, can't be destroyed or created, but it can only be transferred uh, in different ways. And that's what we see, I think, happening now. You mentioned in the Napoleonic times that the biggest military, the strongest military had the biggest power, which is why I think you know Napoleon never really challenged the UK uh, through naval war because they knew because he knew that their navy was the strongest in the world. But as time passes, the world changes and. You know, we believe that there are four major things that will impact the world the most in the next 100 years, which is, you know, globalization becomes a, big, a bigger issue and all the things that are, are related to that, the geopolitics in different ways becomes a big issue, the use and development of transformative technology and also societal change. So increasing education of the populace, if you take that to the next logical conclusion, they start demanding more things from their governments and more things from uh, from the companies that they buy from, which then impacts the investing world, which is why we see things like ESG becoming important because we have a much more, uh, I, I, you'd say, uh, educated consumer base, which is then demanding more green products. So this 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 um, this trickle down into the investment world is comes from different parts in different ways, which is important for anyone looking to be active in the markets. They need to really have a focus on. Um, Going on to one other thing, um, in, in your report that you sent me before this, um, you mentioned, and I quote here, the greatest risks are generally the, the most unanticipated, which I think is true. And in the list of risks that you mentioned, you mentioned a lot of financial risks here. You mentioned the collapse of the tech bubble in 02, the global financial crisis of 08, the Asian financial crisis of 98, and uh, so European sovereign debt uh, crisis of 2010. But would you say that these financial crises could be seen because they are created by the financial world? Things like a pandemic, maybe not so because it has no relation to the finance. But if you see the, uh, the 2008 crisis, for those who were paying attention to what was happening, especially um, with the new you know, financial concoctions that were happening in, in America, seeing how this could play out, someone could theorize this could be a big problem. Just like now we're talking about the pandemic having a big problem on, on the tail end, surely these risks that um, are mentioned are predictable in some way, shape or form. But things that can't be predictable are things that aren't, which are maybe not related to the financial world. Have you got a comment on that? Yes, I, th I think economic risks are easier to look at, to forecast than financial risks, because, uh, for example, in the 2008 financial crisis, we could see that there was a problem in the US housing market. There was no doubt there was a bubble there. And there was a bubble related to subprime mortgages. And it's because of you know, years of uh, deregulation in that area where, uh, and banks being basically able to make, uh, and, and making mortgages and packaging mortgages. But you could see the problem, but what was, what was quite opaque was the level of risk within the derivatives market. Uh, because what really happened in the fall of 2008, it wasn't just the housing, it was all these credit default swaps all across 
um, Wall Street and around the financial world, um, we had the, all these these derivatives with a, a colossal notional values. Now they should most of it should cancel out, but it's very difficult at any point in time to know exactly how it all cancels out. And what's more, we had we had set up a system where they all cancel out if everybody pays the bills. But the problem was with the structure of, of uh, derivatives that if you had one bad player at the table who promised to you know make good in all these 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 bills and then actually went bankrupt, then suddenly the whole edifice looked difficult and there was no way of knowing who was broke or who wasn't. And that caused the whole credit markets to freeze up. Now, in, in hindsight, it's easy to say, oh, that was inevitable, but it wasn't inevitable. I mean, first of all, we could have avoided it altogether if we had been as bold in dealing with Lehman Brothers as we've subsequently been in dealing with other financial crises. Uh, but also it wasn't clear that you know, the, the, the full scale of you know, the, the Federal Reserve wouldn't move appropriately and the federal government wouldn't move appropriately in passing TARP fast enough. Um, so in hindsight, these things look obvious. So at the time, it wasn't obvious that this would, you know, the subprime crisis in the US would turn into the global financial crisis. That wasn't obvious at all. Um, but I do accept that, that at least economic issues, financial issues may be a little easier to see. Uh, but I think we, we always assume this sort of normal distribution of risks based on what we've seen in the past and there are black swans, you know, the pandemic is a black swan. I said, you know, nuclear could be a black swan, you know, meteorite, an earthquake yeah, um, anything, could, yeah. be, could be a, a, a huge problem. We, it's hard, admittedly, I mean, the, the fascinating thing about the pandemic is it would have been really hard beforehand to come up with any crisis, no matter how bad, which would actually zap the entire world at the same time. And the pandemic did that, as did the global financial crisis. That's very unusual. Those are really, it's hard to think of a third example of something, you know, beyond thermonuclear war and then who cares? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. For sure. But it's, otherwise it's hard to find a, a, a global problem. But it's, uh, the, the point I make though, is that these things are unpredictable and you hedge against predictable risks. You diversify against unpredictable risks. And yeah. that's, you know, one of the major argument for diversification is that you don't know which way the next shock is going to hit you from or what direction it's going to come from. Yeah, yeah. Would you say also when you when the issue of, of, of uh, or the topic of a black swan comes up, do you think black swans exist for different people in different ways? Because if you're focused, if you're, if you're, if you're an, an investor may have an interest or a focus on on, uh, on, on viruses or on, on aspects which could lead up to a virus, then that wouldn't be too much of a black swan for you as opposed to if you were an investor which was focused more on something else. So would you say that black swans aren't universally applicable to everyone? It would depend on what your focus is at that time and what you can see as signals, which then you can take and use to your advantage. For some, some, uh, for some people, some things are black swans, but for others, other things are deemed as black swans. And when you listen to it in, on average on, on the media or on TV, Things like the pandemic could be a, a, a black swan for maybe the vast majority, but for those who may have done their research in different ways, then they could have seen how they could potentially hedge against something like this, maybe not knowing the full impact, but knowing what they would do just in case this would come up. Saying that, do you think uh, the investment world and perhaps even yourself are, are developing more robust measures of looking at the world to see what the next potential black swan could be and putting bodies and minds to these problems of the future, I, yes, I think we're well. I think we're putting more effort into it, but I am somewhat skeptical of our ability to do something solid about it because very often you have something which is a small risk, and then suddenly it happens. 
And if you're trying to buy an insurance against that small risk, if you maneuver the entire portfolio to try to protect against that small risk, you will lose out in 19 out of 20 scenarios and you will make out like a bandit in the 20th. And that's, I mean, let me give you an example. I'll tell you another black swan. Okay. The 2020 election, or sorry, not the 2020 election, the 2000 election. Okay. Back in 2000, when George W. Bush um, beat uh, Al Gore, he beat him by a few hundred votes in Florida, which is the equivalent of basically, you fill a football stadium with people and one person moves their seat. Uh, and it, it was a, an unbelievable fluke in electoral history. It just is, it should, there's no, the probability is zero of it happening. How could you have protected against that? You could have protected your portfolio against a close election. You could have assumed that we'd have a sell-off because of a close election, or that might cause a recession. But if you position the portfolio for a close election and a recession, um, and then, you know, most likely that thing doesn't happen, then, then, then you, you're actually losing money. I would say that also about the subprime crisis. You know, most times the subprime crisis would simply have been a U.S. crisis, like the savings and loan crisis, and it would have gone away. Um, the same thing a little bit with the pandemic. You know, you could have said Ebola might have been the same thing as, the, as, uh, uh, as COVID or SARS might have been, uh, but it wasn't. So it's, it's a little hard. You can see the problem, and it's always important to be aware of the problem and think about, well, what if this happened? But it's, a, it's very, you know, a lot of these black swans really are, are, are unlikely events until suddenly they, they actually happen. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult, especially given, given what people see as being an effect of, of, of a potential outcome. You mentioned yes. the uh, the election. You, for example, may have an opinion that, let's say, if Biden, well, this is before the election, but if Biden comes into office, there'll be a massive sell-off because of his rhetoric towards high taxation or uh, whatever. Whereas someone else would say, well, if Biden does get elected, then we see this as being being uh, a positive or a negative, and that will play out in the markets afterwards, and whoever's right um, will be seen. But it's not necessarily the case that all uh, all. Um, um, all evaluations of an event are the same, which is why we see such uh, such volatility before and after something like an an election, where you see two candidates, especially in America, obviously, where they they at least pitch to the world or to the UK populace what their plans are for the future. And if you can trade off that, if you can somehow predict what the election will be, then you'll be in a good good position. But for other things. It may not be as clear cut and as simple, especially as something like a pandemic de develops over time. You don't, you know, without knowing what the end point will be, it will be up in the air for a lot of it. Um, there, there is one other thing that I think we can say about this: if you have shock, and the first thing that the shock does, it, cre it creates an enormous cloud of uncertainty, and that usually will cause markets to fall. But one of the most predictable things is that, that cloud will then dissipate. I remember, um, you know, uh, uh, quite a few, few years ago, uh, they had a terrible earthquake in, in, in uh, Fukushima in, in Japan. Yeah. Um, and it knocked out supply chains. It caused a, a terrible tsunami. The Japanese economy was very badly hurt. And for a few days afterwards, and of course, we had the issue of the nuclear plant, which was even, even yeah, more scary. Yeah. But for a few days after, there was yeah. tremendous uncertainty about what all this would mean. And uh, but then over time, you know, the, the there wasn't a nuclear catastrophe and the risk of a nuclear catastrophe fell sharply and markets bounced back. Um, and same thing with elections. Very, you know, one of the I never like to bet on an outcome of election because, you know, if it's close, it's close. But also I recognize that very often after an election, even if the outcome wasn't exactly what you wanted, one thing that has happened is uncertainty has fallen. 
And as uncertainty falls, market tends to go up. So it's, a, you know, it's actually quite a predictable result to have the stock market rally once the certainty of an election result um, is, is there. Uh, because you know it's less uncertain, it should be positive for equities. Yeah, yeah. So the last thing I, I want to get into with you, 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 David, is is the is the difference between understanding. I mean, I remember in 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 a, in, in a past interview you gave is that you know, although times of volatility or unpredictability like unpredictability like a virus comes along, what really matters at the end are the fundamentals of companies and how they actually operate. And that, that's what you, you should be basing your investments on. But it seems as if with the rise of different kinds of bubbles and momentum investing becoming so prominent during the pandemic, uh, things like fundamentals, uh, you can comment on this, but many see this as taking a back seat to following trends and to, and, and, and to capitalizing off of people's fears. Um, do, you, do you think there is such a thing happening now where fundamentals are not being paid attention to as much because the world isn't, isn't in, in a place where you can really rely on fundamentals as an indicator for, uh, for value uh, when you invest in the stock market? Well, I do think that, that investors are more focused on momentum um, and have been for the last few years and particularly during the pandemic yeah. than fundamentals. Um, and I think that, again, you know, I think that was going on before the pandemic and, and you know the run-up to the U.S. election, and then when the pandemic occurred, I think it became even more the case. And really, I, I think also gets back to this uncertainty issue because when the pandemic occurred, we had a, a massive amounts of uncertainty. So we had uncertainty in politics, we had uncertainty on how the pandemic would play out. And you know, if, if you're out sailing and uh, and a big fog descends upon you, what you try to do normally is you just keep sailing the same direction but slower. Mm. And I think what happened is the people who are betting on long, uh, you know, large cap growth stocks just you know, double down on that bet, or people who are betting on long-term government bonds, again, double down on that bet. And so you saw an extension of uh, momentum investing, which actually added further distortion to markets. But as the smoke clears, because I think 2021 is a year of greater clarity when we see how the pandemic might come to an end, when you've got greater clarity on government policy, um, as that happens, um, then I think valuations become more important, um, particularly if you have a correction, because if you know when when everything's going up, people are happy to just uh, not think so much about what's causing things to go up. Yeah. But when everything falls, then suddenly people's attention is yeah. is uh, you know drawn by that, and they start thinking, well, what is it that I own? So you know this kind of environment is very good for mega cap growth stocks for. Uh, you know, things like Bitcoin, various other speculative assets. But in an environment where you had a significant market sell-off, I think those are the very assets that are most vulnerable as people think about, well, if everything goes bad, what's going to be worth the most? Yeah. And, uh, and so I think I do think fundamentals will matter more. And I do also think fundamentals matter more in the long run because you have these, these cycles of enthusiasm or, or despair in markets, um, which will, you know, Either you know make or break momentum investors, but um, you know in the long run, I think valuations do have a greater impact. And in fact, there's plenty of empirical work which say, suggests that those fundamentals of valuations really matter much more for long-term returns and short-term returns. Yeah. Do you think then, in terms of, as we mentioned before, you know, investors are now not only focused on the big um, financial capitals of the world, but we see as again as countries develop. We have financial centers and, and asset managers and family offices develop in different parts of the world. So, you know, a rise in liquidity in general is being seen. And 
the first place that they may go to are more established markets like the US and the UK, Europe and, 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 and others. And then putting, parking their money in stocks there because um, they see it as being the best ROI for them. And actually when this happens, we see a rise in the, in the stock price that may be linked to fundamentals, but because there's so much liquidity that, are, that is going towards these stocks, it distorts uh, the value of that stock at that price because there's so yep. much popularity. So the fundamentals are doing so well, perhaps, that we see more money go, go, go in, going into them. But then as that stock uh, price go, goes up, it doesn't justify the price, but there's so much money out there going towards them that it causes an issue. Is there something that you can say about that? Or is that a thing that you see? Yeah, no, no, I've, I've always believed that uh, enough money will ruin any asset class. And we've seen uh, you know, for many, many years. And, uh, um, and I think... What's going on right now in markets is we have multiple little bubbles on top of a broader bubble in financial markets where financial you know, stocks, bonds, or alternative investments, they're all priced pretty high relative to the output of the value of GDP produced in the, in the, in the US economy or in the world. Yeah. Um, and I do think that that's a, a problem, um, but it's, it won't last forever. I mean, it's, you know, uh, there, we go through these cycles and right now we're in a cycle uh, of a lot of momentum and people bidding up various asset prices. But again, eventually, some of these bubbles will burst. Maybe a lot of them will burst at the same time. And then those fundamental, then those assets, which really have fundamental foundations, will do much better yeah. in relative terms. Okay. And finally, then, when, when we speak about bubbles, many say that ESG could be a bubble. Obviously, the pandemic has caused you know, um, a distortion of asset prices because of momentum. What are your thoughts on things like, even if you give a couple of minutes on each, the phenomenon of the rise of, of ESG investing and the problems with that or the, 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 the value in that, and also things like cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and these, this new innovation of uh, NFTs. Have you got any thoughts on these topics? Well, on ESG, I don't quite see that as a bubble. I do think there's a lot of enthusiasm around, around ESG, but there are a lot of regulatory issues which I think will force the pace of ESG, um, particularly envir the environmental side of this. I think uh, uh, there, there's, there's enough regulation, there's enough tough goals that there will be new money deployed to try to help uh, green um, initiatives. And so I think that's, I, I think that, that, you know, perhaps every asset in that, um, you know, that, that is seen as a green technology, maybe there are many that are overpriced, but um, I think the enthusiasm for this is going to continue because, frankly, the climate is going to continue to get warmer, um, and uh, we do see a rise in in um, in green parties around the world. I think there's more interest in it among the, among the voting public. So I, I think that that will continue. Um, on cryptocurrencies, um, they're nonsense, um, and it's I mean they are nonsense. This is and it's fascinating to me because I've seen this so many times before, um, and there have been many examples over history, but. Um, there is nothing about Bitcoin that makes it worth more than uh, the price of a cup of coffee. Um, it is, yes, it's blockchain technology, fine. Uh, but there's nothing to stop me from setting up Zitcoin or Mitcoin, or my favorite personally is David Kelly coin. Uh, <laughs> and I promise to only hold 20% uh, uh, of the issues myself. Everything else you can get into the ground floor, please step right up. But it's, it's, it is nonsense because there's nothing, there's nothing that guarantees its convertibility into, uh, into gold or one of the world's leading currencies. What's more, it is a threat to authorities around the world because its best use is for money laundering. It is not a useful currency mm. in that it's not a store of value, unit of account, or a medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, people are 
um, you know, are excited because it's going up and they, they, they pretend to understand it, but they don't understand it. Mm. And then it gets a further veneer of respectability from financial firms who say, oh, we will trade this or we'll set up an EA, ETF in this or we will do this or we'll do that. And you know, block, blockchain chain technology, I'm sure, is, is, is very useful. And I think that there, may, there will be reasons for digital assets going forward as opposed to, for example, people carrying around um, euro notes or dollar notes in, in their pocket. Yes, you can see some growth in this, but um, the idea of um, autonomous currencies where you're not to know who bought and who sold um, and some mysterious person is the original founder and holder of all this wealth um, this is silliness, and it will it will turn out very badly at some stage. And I just worry that um, you know too many individual investors will get lured into it. It's it's just a 21st century version of the emperor's new clothes. Mm. Um, and I and I think that of, of digital uh, art or whatever yeah. too. I mean, it's it's, it's silliness. Yeah. Um, so. I, I see I see your point. There. In fact, you know, uh, we had an we had an interview with. Um, with uh, with Dr. Savasavori, he is the uh, chief economist of Tosca Fund Asset Management here in the UK. They manage over four billion in assets, and he said the same thing. Um, but then you have other voices, for example, in in America, you have you know you know very influential and wealthy billionaires who who really promote the virtues of of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as being the future of currency. I mean, do you think there's some sort of reason behind that? Seeing I know you're a, you're you're sort of a trained economist and and you've seen these sort of bubbles perhaps in the past and these in, in, innovations come to be in different forms, but what just if, if you were to uh sort of be the devil's advocate and justify the use of Bitcoin, is there anything you could say that would that would give uh, you confidence or that would give these uh these prominent people confidence in in its uh, in its value? No, it sounds cool. I mean, crypto sounds pretty cool. Mm. Um, so it sounds cool, and yes, you can use blockchain technology as a, is a you know re, as a fast way of doing transactions. But to be honest, you know, if I use my credit card for a transaction, it's pretty darn fast. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, I don't have any. There is no the the general public business is not slowed down by the the you know by the snail like pace of transactions. That that is. That's that's absolutely not true. Yeah. Um, I think that there is some advantage in digital currencies overall, but then the problem with that is that you that currencies. I mean, it's a, you know, a currency is for a simple transaction, but in people's financial lives, they have a, a set of complex transactions. I mean, I I don't just pay my cable bill this month; I pay my cable bill every month. Yeah. Do I want to be making a separate Bitcoin transaction every month for my cable bill? No. Um, could I set it up so that I make a cable bill transaction every month? Yes, but where does a bill come? Mm. And, and so you, you, the technological infrastructure around, and that's the simplest of yeah. transactions. So I think it's not well designed for complex financial transactions. And also, you know, the other side of the banking industry finances investments. So I wouldn't particularly want to undermine the banking industry by making transactions costless, yeah. but um, and then and then somehow get the central banks in the business of uh, of trying to run your balance your checking account, I think that would be a a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but more importantly, just because some smart people or some influential people think something is a good idea doesn't mean it's a good idea. I mean, every every minority fringe silly religion in the world, and there are plenty of them, or political movement, they have some fierce adherents. And what's remarkable about financial bubbles is. You know, as uh, Lincoln would have said, you don't have to fool all the people all the time. You don't even have to fool 
um, all of the people some of the time. You just have to fool, fool some of the people some of the time, uh, and you will have a, a adherents mm. who believe in this thing. They hear good things about it, and if so, so long as the market finds more skeptical, uh, more willing buyers than yeah. sellers, the price goes up. The yeah. problem is that when you run out of people who are foolish enough to buy something, and then you realize there's nothing underneath it, that's when it collapses. And that's where we, you know, that's what the tulip bubble is about. That's yeah. what, you know, the uh, we've seen. Uh, same thing with John Law in yeah. France 300 years ago. I mean, yeah. over the years, yeah, it happens sure, over sure, and over sure, and over again. Sure. But surely, uh, you you could you could say the same thing about fiat currencies. You know, the fact that you know the gold, uh, the dollar isn't backed by anything, and it's and it's and the value is 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 in is in is in re is in relevance to something else. Is that sort of you make the same argument well, for the, the for the dollar? At the same time, well, you you well, it's easier to make that argument today than it would normally be, but mm -hmm. I don't really think that's that's quite accurate. First of all, um, I you know, gold is not a particularly good example because gold, of course, at least it's a unique asset, but yeah. there, there's a, a truly limited supply, so it cannot work. Gold, a gold standard with a uh, with a fixed exchange rate cannot work in the global economy. But with the fiat currency, so long as the central bank says that we will not allow the price of goods and services denominated in this currency to rise by more than say 2% per year. That's the stable inflation rate we're going to. That implies a control on the supply of that currency in order to achieve that inflation result. And, and, and so, so, so long as it is the only currency in the United States which is legal tender, mm -hmm. uh, which you can use for the settlement of, of uh, all, uh, you know, all transactions and a central bank uh, commits itself to maintain the value of that relative to goods and services sold in that economy, mm -hmm. then it does give a, a degree of assurance to a fiat currency. Now, if you lose faith in that central bank or the government that appoints the member, you know, the, the, the governors of that central bank, then you've got a problem. Yeah. And I am I, not a fan of MMT, which uh, yeah. uh, you know, could well push us in a very dangerous direction. Yeah. But I do think that fiat currencies uh, are more legitimate than something like Bitcoin. Mm, okay. Listen, David, I can speak to you all day long. I mean, this conversation has been amazing and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to do this again uh, next year or whenever we find some time. But uh, if people want to get in contact with you, with you, with you, with you David, I know you're very active on LinkedIn, so I'm mm -hmm. sure that would be the best place to go. But is there any other way that you feel you, you, you have open access for you to be contacted by? Do you use Twitter or well, I think else? That, I think that's I, I actually think that's the best way. If you, if you are interested in in uh, contact me, contact me through LinkedIn. I mean, yeah. I could give out my email address, yeah. my business email address, but that'd be inundated with emails. So I, I think I you think should, you should keep that for, uh, for for select people. Well, that's how we got in contact anyway. I messaged you on, on yeah. LinkedIn, and and we managed to have this this uh, podcast. So you are responsive on there. So for the final time, David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist of J P Morgan Asset Management. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Wilson. Thank you. Wonderful.